it will actually do that, right? So it's got the exact data. The smart contract applies its logic, and it works. And what happens when, when it begins to work, both companies will go, wow, it worked. And then they'll go, oh, wow, it worked. And they're like, oh, it's full transparency. You're going to see everything. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by E-Renewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 100. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. We have hit the century mark in the podcasting space. That is no small feat. Throughout a little press release on Wednesday, kind of detailing a little bit just how hard it is to hit 100 episodes. And that's really not the point today. We're excited about today's episode. Michael Matthews, Senior Vice President from Data Gumbo, talking all things blockchain in energy. What a way to hit episode 100. Talking about a technology that everybody has an idea about, but there's very few folks that are of Michael Matthews stature that can break it down in terms and you know processes that we can all understand. So we're very excited about this because let's call it what it is: blockchain is everywhere. But why hasn't it been adopted more in the energy space, especially since it does have sustainable aspects to it? So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we'll get to that here in just a second. But episode 100, of course, we are powered by eRenewable. So let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas, or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas, from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at 1-866-E-RENEW-1. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can learn more about the company over at eRenewable.com. And then, of course, give us a follow on our LinkedIn page, eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. Become a follower today. That way we can highlight you and your company on our weekly Follower Friday series. This week will be Tim Berrigan from the North American Energy Markets Association. You know that name because we do the Name and News Minute every other week. They've got the big conference coming up in the middle of April. You do not want to miss that. Tim talks a little bit about the conference, what you can expect, kind of what the agenda is. And then, of course, for folks that can't make it, why you you should become a member of the NEMA group. You will be glad that you get that information because a lot of great stuff is going on at NEMA. They've got a lot of stuff planned this summer as well. Can't tell you too much about that just yet. That's a tease, ladies and gentlemen, but stay tuned because a lot of great stuff's coming from the folks over at NEMA. All right, let's get down to today's episode number 100. It's got a nice ring to it. I can't lie to you, folks. Michael Matthews, Senior Vice President, Data Gumbo, talking all things blockchain and energy. And of course, blockchain is something that we haven't really delved into much in the Green Insight 
Insider, and Michael Matthews does a tremendous job of explaining exactly what the blockchain is and why it's so important. He gets into smart contracts and why they're so valuable and all the information and data that they can hold. He discusses capturing not just the E, but also gets into the S and the G, uh, which not a lot of folks have talked about. And then finally, we get into a little bit about why hasn't blockchain been adopted more into the renewable space? And when you're capturing so much data and you can take it into so many different directions, how does a company like Data Gumbo keep their focus when they're getting pulled in so many different directions because they have so much data. It's a great listen, ladies and gentlemen. I promise you this. You are going to learn more about blockchain and how it's being used in the energy space than you've heard anywhere else. So please welcome to the program, episode number 100, Mr. Michael Matthews. I joined Data Gumbo about two and a half years ago. I'm an engineer by training. And most of my career was actually building large and complex assets. And then eventually got into the IT sides of things and implementing enterprise systems. And then I moved into the, uh, into the consulting world with uh, my own firm for a while and with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And then went to a, wanted to be more technical than that. I went to a system integrator called Instoa. They're based out of New York. And through them, I met Andrew. And we were, in the SI, we were trying to solve this data problem. And... On these capital projects, there's all this disparate data. It can't come together. It's difficult to work with. And Andrew had this technology that he's come up with, one's what we're called Data Gumbo, that essentially takes disparate data from all these different data sources and gets it to where you can actually use it to do something. And then uh, the light bulb went off when he was talking to a major operator and offshore, you know, service contractor. And they were like, you know, we do... 2 million drill pipe connections a year, and it takes six minutes per connection. If I can get it down to five minutes, it's worth about $250 million to us. And we're willing to share that with By the shaving contract. one minute off. Why we're shaving one minute off. Think about it, additional revenue, but also lower cost structure. Yeah. And um, so it's a pretty big number. But we can't get a single contractor to agree to do it. And then Andrew had been, you know, around blockchain and uh, around smart contracts. He already had the IoT platform for Data Gumbo. He's like, I know the five pieces of data required to actually calculate the exact uh, drill pipe connection time. Why don't I do that, collect that data, create a smart contract that actually makes the incentive calculation for meeting that goal, and then store everything in a block on blockchain? Would that work? After some chuckling about blockchain and cryptocurrency and all that, they actually said that might work. And that's where Data Gumbo, we shifted from just being an IoT platform to actually being a B2B network that's essentially powered by blockchain. We're going to get into a little bit about ESG and what you guys are doing in that realm. And then, of course, obviously blockchain and how it's, you know, you know its penetration into renewables. But look, blockchain's one of those deals where you've heard of it, you know it. But you might not really know how it works, right? right. And, and so can you give the folks at home, the listeners, a, just kind of a, you know, 101 or blockchain for dummies, Cliff Notes version of what the hell it is? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, actually. And we, we come across that quite a bit. And I had a, a friend a few years ago, you know, talking about the, you know, the movie Jaws. It's not about the shark. Right. right. It's really not about the about the blockchain. Um, people associate it with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and things like that. But if you step back and look at what it does very simply, it, it's a 
a storage device effectively that enables trust between parties that may not necessarily trust each other, right, or not know each other. And so it's effectively like a database, but what it does when a transaction occurs, it'll create a block, essentially a storage space. And you can put whatever you want into that. And in this context of what we're doing, we're putting the, you know, the transaction-related data into that block. And that block then gets secured by, it assigns a uh, cryptographic hash, essentially like a thumbprint, unique thumbprint to that block. And it connects it to the subsequent, to the, the block that came before. So the thumbprint on this block connects with the thumbprint on the, you know, the previous block, and, it, and uh, that creates essentially secure storage. You can't mess with it. And so it essentially puts a, almost like a lock on it. It's, you can't change it. It becomes immutable. If you change it, it actually breaks that link and flags it to everybody. So and when they talk about it in terms of distributed ledger, that block is just not in one place. You get a copy of it. The buyer gets a copy, the seller gets a copy, any other third party that you want to allow to get a third copy gets a copy of it. And so if you were to actually try to break in, you would have to figure out how to get behind this firewall, this firewall, this firewall of all those different entities. So, oh, in, that, really? so in that way, it makes it very, very secure. So there's the, you know, the hash technology that makes it secure, but then the fact that it's distributed across multiple entities behind different you know, security systems, you'd have to actually figure out how to get into all, let's say there's three parties in this particular example, you'd have to get into that particular block of all three companies to make the change. But if you break it, then everyone is notified that it's broken. Mike, when you gather all this data, is it being stored at a data center somewhere or is it all cloud-based? Ours is cloud-based. And we're a little bit different in that we are what's called, we're private and permissioned blockchain. So it's not a public blockchain. What that means is that the parties that essentially subscribe to it almost like as a service, and that gives them access to the blockchain. And then they create transactions and interact with other companies on that blockchain through smart contracts. So almost think of it like a, like a LinkedIn business to business connection, but you're connecting not to say, hey, I want to connect you're connecting through actually a, a, a contract, a smart contract. And a, an important distinction is that smart contract, it's not replacing your existing contract between the two companies. It's essentially just automating the commercial terms of that contract, in effect. The smart contract will look for a trigger event, say, hey, something's happened. It will then look for the verification data to say, hey, did I actually get what I paid for, or did it meet the spec, or was the quantity right, or whatever? And then it'll apply the commercial terms and create a transaction. That then, back to the blockchain, it'll create a block, it'll put all that information in it, and both parties can come in and look at that transaction. Is there a way that you can define for our listeners what a smart contract really is and give a kind of a real-life example? Okay, yeah. We do this every, not every day, but at least once a week. Each of us goes and has to, you know, has to fill up your car, right? And you go, to the, you go to the gas pump, you pull it off, you see what the price is, right? You put it into your car. Usually you have to put your card in, right, to, in order to get the pricing. So you've already committed, essentially, I will pay for this. Pump turns on. You know I'm going to pay this much per gallon, and then you sit and you watch the gallons tick. And when it finishes, like, okay, I'm done, and you lock up your gas cap and drive away. And you can, I don't get the receipt, but some people want to print the receipt out and keep it and know that this is what I did, but I'll look at it at the end of the month. In effect, that's a smart contract. 
you've got the quantities, right? Yeah. You've got the pricing, right? You could have, the, you do have the timestamp. Did I really go to that gas station on that day? Did somebody get my car? And so both sides of that, that uh, interaction is effectively, that's all being executed on a smart contract. And so our idea at Data Gumbo was why can't, if we can do that in a B2C context, why can't I in a B2B context do the same thing? So if I'm going out to your well out in the middle of the Permian and picking up, you know, produced water out of this tank and taking it somewhere and delivering it, why does it take, you know, 30 steps on my side and 30 steps on your side and 120 days for me to get paid? And so taking that same concept and applying it in that context, reducing those day sales outstanding and all of the effort involved with proving that I picked up the water and delivered it to the site, why can't it be a swipe and go context? And that's a smart contract. It's almost kind of like blockchain is like high tech safety deposit boxes. Yeah. In a way? In a way. Okay. So in the way we're using it, it can be used for all kinds of different purposes, but in this context, it's... Um, yeah, it's like Switzerland, right? So yeah. the, the data goes in and the parties agree that this is what's going to go in there. And, and, and it's almost a, de a double-edged sword because what will implement smart contracts and it's, it creates transparency, right? right. You can't, there's no, oh, I sent that to you or no, we lost it or no, I, you know, the, the contract will, com you know, it's going to compare, it could do a two-way match, a three-way match or whatever, but the data is there. Yeah. And, and then the smart contract does exactly what it's supposed to do. And a smart contract in this context is just a small bit of code. It's, a, it's doing if this, then that. And so it's looking for a trigger event, say something happened, it's applying the logic to verify and applying the commercial terms. You know, there is a legal aspect of what we do because we're not, we're not replacing the, the, the legal constructs or the contracts. And so we do work with law firms. And we were working with one of the law firms in town and they recognize what we're doing. It's like, you're collecting this operational data. You could actually take that and apply it in an ESG context and make a lot of the, you know, the calculations, particularly the difficult ones around, let's say, emissions. Why not apply that in an ESG context and see, you know, because we know our clients are struggling with how do they report this? How do I figure this out? How do I do it consistently without having an army of people running around with Excel spreadsheets trying to capture the data? And that was sort of our impetus into it about a year ago. And then uh, since then, we actually stepped back and went and looked at some of our current contracts around, let's say, water haulage or uh, diesel delivery or uh, chemical delivery in the, in the oil fields. And we found that we could, yes, we could do the commercial transactions for those, but we could also calculate all the emissions associated with that diesel consumption for drilling and fracking. We could calculate the emissions for every single trip that was taken because we know the, we know the asset, we know the truck, we know the timestamps, we know the distance. That's all in the, that's all in the contract, we right? We have all that, yeah. It's not necessarily in the contract, but it's, it's providing in the data. So okay. the, typically, like the service company, they have already have GPS systems, right? You yeah. know exactly where the trucks went, and they just send that data to us. We know the timestamps. We know when they arrived on site. We know when they picked it up. And then they'll have a, like a ticketing system, and they'll, you know, the, the driver may type that stuff in, or they may have it automated, if depending on how you know how the truck is configured. And so, so how do you process all? Because that's a, I mean, you talk about data gumbo. I mean, it's data gumbo on steroids for crying <laughs> out loud. So I mean, how do you process all that information? Yeah. So. Our CEO Andrew likes to say it's it's we're not 
yes, we're an IoT platform, but we're not about big data. We're about specific data. Okay. So when we go out and look for that, we're, we're looking for, like I said, just a, a trigger event. So we just, so maybe, you know, like that trucking example, there may only be two or three trips a day. Okay. Right? So there's not, you know, it's not like fintech where you're doing thousands of transactions gotcha. a minute or day. Okay. We're talking our type of stuff because it's more in a commercial application. If there's hundreds a day, that's really high. Usually it's like in the tens yeah. of things. And so that that's manageable. But obviously as you get more and more transactions on, you know, there's more and more data. But we're for a specific smart contract, usually there's not a lot of data. It's just getting access to that data so that the smart contract can use it. That's the biggest challenge. Not so much the, the volume, but the access. And so when you go back into that blockchain, I'm guessing, do you need the you know, and especially since it's an ESG perspective, right? Because it's going to help both companies out. Right. They're going to know, right? Once you guys go into it, they're going to get tipped off. Or how does that how does that process work? Because, like you said, if somebody goes into it, everybody gets alerted, right? Right, right. Yep. It will actually do that, right? So it's got the exact data. The smart contract applies its logic, and it works. And what happens when when it begins to work? Both companies will go, "Wow, it worked!" And then they go, "Oh, wow, it worked!" And they're like, "Oh, it's full transparency." You're going to see everything, and we've—I probably shouldn't say this—but we've actually, on the, when we get to the ESG side, we're running into companies saying that they don't necessarily want that level of transparency at about, this point. Right. So they kind of like it that it's still in Excel, and I could, you know, we could get it to, you know, to be consistent with what our, let's say, external messaging is. But that's rapidly going to change. We think with the. At least what we're hearing in the next week or so, the SEC is going to come out by you know the end of March with some you know rec not recommendations, but basically this is going to be required, and you're going to have to have provable, measurable basis for your emissions reporting to begin with. And is that reporting going to be uh, mandatory across all sectors of industry, or is it going to start in certain sectors and then spread out after that? I imagine it's going to apply equally to all sectors. There may be some scaling of it, maybe to company size. Um, I know the um, in California, I don't think it's been passed yet. I know there was a bill moving through their Senate that was actually scaling it based on company size. You would have to be able to uh, report greenhouse gas emissions scope one, two, and three. If you were below a certain size, then there was some there's some flexibility. My guess is it'll apply equally to all industries, but there may be some scaling based on size. Well, you know, when you talk about scope one, two, and three, I want you to tell everybody how not every person places every item in scope one, specifically, could also be in scope three. There's a chance for one item, two different companies, being scored two different ways. Is correct. that not correct? That is correct. Can you walk us through an example of how that might apply in real life. Okay. Yeah, so if the whole concept behind scope one, two, and three, and it's called greenhouse gas protocol. And if you want, I don't know the website, but you can go out to their website and there's all of the, you know, the standards and the rules that go around defining that. Uh, but scope one is essentially the emissions associated with your direct operations. So being performed and done by you know, effectively assets that you own and operate. Scope two are the emissions associated with, let's say, any electricity and they even say steam that you consume. The emissions associated with the generation of that electricity. So if all of your electricity is coming from, let's say, you know, solar or wind, then the emissions associated with that generation would be 
none, right? But if it's, you know, combined cycle gas or coal-fired plant or whatever, then you need to account for that emissions for all the electricity you consume. Scope three, there's two components to that. One's called upstream, and what that refers to is the emissions associated with your supply chain. So all the vendors and suppliers and service companies that you engage to help you do whatever it is you do, you need to be able to report the emissions that they generate in service of your operations. And then scope three downstream is all the emissions associated in getting whatever your product is to market and emissions associated with the use of that product. So in the oil and gas space, that's the, I guess, the elephant in the room, is the, the scope three emissions for oil and gas companies is what's called embedded emissions. And that is the emissions associated with the actual burning of the, the fuel that gets produced, or the burning of the gas. So think about that. If I'm, you know, one of the major oil and gas companies, being able to actually account in my scope through reporting all of the vehicles that are burning my gasoline across, you know, across the U.S. And so... How do you keep track of that? Yeah, well, how do you keep track of that? Well, you're obviously never, you're never going to get down to knowing every single vehicle that filled up, but you could probably get to that, that source, you know, each gas station being effectively an emissions source. You know the volumes going through that. You probably know the mix of vehicles that are filling, and you can kind of model it. You're never going to get to accuracy. Okay. You know, it's being pumped in the, I think you could say, okay, more than likely that gas is going to be burned over this time period right. report. So back to your question between scope one and scope three, that's where, particularly in like in the operations of a company, um, and we see a lot of this in the oil and gas sector, is the scope one emissions for, let's say, the operator, the operator being the company that, let's say, you know, owns the oil and gas well and is producing it. And maybe they're in, in drilling operations, they've you know, have a contract out to a service company to do the drilling. And there's maybe a diesel engine that's driving that, that drilling. That diesel engine is owned and operated by the, the, the service company, right? But the diesel fuel might be purchased by the operator that goes into that. And in that context, that's where you begin to see is it, it, it really clear lines between who is scope one and who is scope three. Obviously, scope one is the asset owner, is the operator. In this context, scope three would be the service company providing that service to the owner. Now, it, where it gets gray, well, what if the owner is buying the diesel fuel that's going into to drive that diesel engine for the drilling? Is that counted as scope one or is that counted as scope three because it's being actually operated by the by the service company. That level of detail is not obviously going to come out in a, in a guidance. And so at this point also, yeah. we don't have anybody out there that's going to audit and say, you got that wrong at this point, correct? Correct. So, you know, we're the wild, wild west. You score it somewhere, you put it somewhere and to be determined whether it's correct or not. Right. And, and, and so when you get into the carbon accounting side of things and counting carbon credits, there's, there's some concepts of, of permanence and then what they call ex- exclusivity. And essentially, they, the exclusivity component of it is being sure not to double count. Right. So in this scope one, scope three example, if you're claiming, let's say, reduction in emissions, is happening, you know, was done by this particular company, this other company that may be in scope three cannot claim the same the same reduction. It can go just one place or another. And so in that scenario, does each company have to talk to each other about where they're placing it so the other doesn't place it there? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's yet to be determined, right? I think that's you know that's where the you know the regulation side of things are going to come in because right now there's nothing to compel either company to to get that right, right? They're both probably going to want to claim it as theirs. Hey, Mike, you talked a lot about the E and ESG. What about the S and G? Can you tell us a little bit about what that means on the uh, scale? Yeah, I, I will say, you know, the ESG and particularly the greenhouse gas emissions, that gets the majority of the press and the majority of the energy because of, you know, the uh, impact on the climate and so forth. But we're also seeing really great applications in the S and the in the more so in the S and a little bit in the G space. And particularly if you look at distributed ledger technology and what we've talked about today is that it's about trust, right? And immutable and auditable and being able to track the sources. So we're, we have a couple of cases um, where we're using that same distributed ledger technology not to facilitate transactions or to calculate greenhouse gas emissions. We're using it for what we call provenance, to prove something. As it moves, as let's say something moves through a value chain, that you're able to associate, let's say, you know, child labor or you know, labor practices or um, human trafficking efforts in, in particular areas of the, of the world. So, you know, I'll call out to, you know, we had this started discussions last week with uh, Red M, who works in um, human trafficking and identifying that and they're really interested in creating well what are the what are the standards that we could embed using a smart contract for companies to report to in a immutable way that could be traced say hey we we did this or we did this activity or we dedicated this many resources and have a framework and a blockchain to report that to that that creates that level of trust like you're just not making this up and so you hear it in the greenhouse gas emissions, you may have heard the term greenwashing. That's just companies say, oh, you know, we're doing these amount of, you know, we're going to be net zero by 2030 or whatever. There's a fear of the same thing on the social side. They call it distributed ledger technology for a reason. It's no different than the old paper ledgers, right? It's got debits and credits, right? And so in this context, because it's separate companies, you've never been able to actually have visibility to actually both companies' ledgers because it's behind their, you know, each of their own entities. In this case, you're essentially offering these ledgers as a private permissioned service to both. Right. And so this company's going to have its ledger, this company's going to have its ledger. I'm going to see the scope 3 emissions over here and the offset scope 1 emissions over here so that you assure that you don't get the double counting and it's exclu exclusively claimed between the two. But it, and just to be clear, it just pertains to that particular project, right? That Correct. we're working on together. Correct. Right? Something you said, I just want to backpedal real quick, and, and it dovetails with uh, a gentleman that we've had on the show, and uh, Chris Romer from Project Canary, mm -hmm. um, and he's been a big proponent. He talked about this in the podcast back in, when we have him on, November, October, November, Probably somewhere not. in there, and this is a big thing he talked about at Sarah Week, was the measurement economy, and it piggybacks on something you just said mm -hmm. earlier about when the transparency where some of these companies looked and said, great, it's transparent. Oh, wait, it's transparent. Yes. Two-part question. One, does that kind of go hand-in-hand hand with what you're noticing, where this transparency is kind of taking people aback at first, yes. but at the same time, this is the way of the world that we're seeing moving forward. And would you guys say you're part of this measurement economy or this is one byproduct? A absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, you know, We'd like to talk about ourselves not so much as a technology company, but a company that is trying to bridge trust between groups or entities or companies or organizations. 
And the idea is we're using data to do that. Yeah. So it's really a, you know, a data-driven economy. And to be able to create that level of trust between the parties that, no, I don't need to double-check, triple-check your invoice and go out and survey and take 120 days to pay you. We're, because it's data-driven and it's happening at the time of, you know, the validation happens at the time of the occurrence or the yeah. calculation, it's just a big change. And so we see... It's almost like a, I don't know, a, a tension that occurs once they realize that, oh, this is really, truly data-driven. And there is no, there's no massaging, there's no whatever right. that's going to be able to happen because fuzzy it's, math. and it's, it, it's out there at the time that it occurs. On the flip side of that, we actually see a positive impact where if you're in, let's say, in, involved with large, complex contracts, and there's a lot of those in the energy sector and they're in, in other sectors, or in construction and, and things like that there's a lot of tension when that invoice comes through and there's just if they're you know i've seen invoices that are you know actually take you know banker boxes full of stuff right and those complex invoices just create all sorts of problems when it's like 45 days later and you're trying to remember this line item is that actually correct and we see there tends to be a lot of um, emotion that comes into play at that point in time because a lot has happened, maybe, and they're trying to litigate something that happened 45, 60 days ago, and tempers flare, and it really creates a lot of problems. If you're going to a database approach, that litigation of something that's disparate between the two parties happens usually within 24 hours of the event. And what we find is that the emotion is way, way down. They're like, oh, you're right. We missed that. Or we didn't type this incorrectly. It's like, because the memories are fresh. So like, and so that emotional response that in defensiveness that you see 45 days later, when it's within a couple of days, it's a lot easier. But there's still that transparency in the shoe. And they're like, kind of back away saying, I'm nah, not ready to do that yet. And we've seen both sides of it. We see in some companies, when you, when you actually get the measurement in, we found that what they were modeling and reporting was actually 30% higher than what it actually was, just because the way they did the calculations. So it can go the other way, like yeah. you described, but sometimes it goes the other way. They just, they've been over-reporting because they just didn't know. I'm using data gumbo for my business. But one of my vendors is not. So if I got his invoice, I put it through Data Gumbo, but he doesn't do anything with his related to Data Gumbo. Does it still tie out the same way you're saying, or does both buyer and seller have to be involved inside the data network? Yeah, that's a, also a good question. I, I would say early on, even just a couple of years ago when we were approving the first contracts, we thought we had to get both parties, the buyer and the seller, on the platform. But what we found is... Either way, we can have just the buyer or just the seller. What we need is the data. And if the two parties agree on the, the, the validation criteria, and maybe it's just a single measurement, sometimes it's, it's a, it's a two-way match, other times it's a three-way match, as long as they agree and we're able to get access to the data. So the vendor may have the data, maybe they're a trucking company and we just need the truck tickets from them for the services they perform. As long as they'll provide the data, then we'll provide and automate the contract on behalf of the, of the buyer. And we've had multiple cases where the seller is like, I'll provide the data because you're telling me I have to, but I'm not going to participate in the invoicing side. So the invoice essentially would go to the buyer side and be automated, and they would then pay it directly back to the vendor. 
Let's walk us through the actual data gumbo, putting the information in, you know, like I said, to, to where it goes to the blockchain. How does that go about? Like, give me, give me the uh, soup to nuts. It's or... actually pretty, pretty simple. So th think of, you know, the, the blockchain with the IoT platform, the smart contract kind of runs on that. So think of that like a like almost like an operating system. It's a platform that the smart contract will run on. The smart contract, as I said before, is looking for a couple of things. So it needs data to do what it, it needs to do. And so when we go to implement, the first thing we do is let, let's pick you know, the contract that you want to, to automate. And we've got, I think, about now 40, about 40, 45 templates built. There's only so many ways you can buy and sell stuff, services and things. And so a lot of that business logic we've got built. And so they pick it and they say, okay, this is the one, here's this contract, here's the commodity or service or whatever it is that we're going to automate. Then we have to identify, okay, where's the data going to come from? And then we figure out, Let's get some historical data just to test the contract to see that it does what it wants. And then let's figure out a way to get the automatic data in so that we're catching the transactions as they occur. Once we get that, you turn it on and watch. And usually they'll want to watch it for three or four weeks to see, does it do what our, our does it emulate our current manual processes? Is it, do we trust it? Is it performing like we thought? And once it does, they're like, okay, let's go. And they'll, then they turn it on. So that whole process, if you're just starting from scratch, can take, you know, usually up to about two months, maybe three at the most to get it started. And then they run it for three or four weeks in a, let's say, that test environment or pilot approach. And then they'll take it to, we call it production, they'll turn it on. And so the data can come from anything. It doesn't have to come from inside your company. So it could be, typed into an app, typed into a phone, it, it could be a scan, it could be a swipe, uh, you know, a reader that I'm driving onto the site, I swipe in. It could be from drones, we're talking in the midstream space, they're trying to define the protocols for methane emissions, so the, the, the emissions monitoring systems. Uh, we tie into SCADA systems. So our partner network are software companies, yeah. original equipment vendors, these edge devices and systems that are collecting this data. We work the partnerships with them so they connect in. Essentially, we have a, a very large API structure to pull all this kind of data into ours. So it's just mapping into our APIs and agreeing on the protocol and bring the data in. We can talk about the the same ideas apply in, the, let's say, in ESG, right? And, okay. In renewables okay. and specifically in the greenhouse gas emissions. Because you're collecting that same data, the smart contract, it's not facilitating a commercial transaction. It's facilitating a calculation, essentially, or the reporting of a measurement. Again, it's looking for a trigger event. Hey, this has happened. You can calculate the emissions associated with that particular activity and whether it's over you know, a specific time frame or for a specific trip or a specific activity in the field. We're already collecting the operational data for that. We know the asset. We'll know the fuel. We'll know the timestamps. I will know the location. We'll reference the appropriate, you know, GRI or um, SASB and the EPA standards for making the calculation. And just like a line item on an invoice, boom, here's an emissions transaction, here's the calculation, here's the source data, here's the, uh, the reference for it. And so we're seeing that in the, in the emissions space. We're also doing that in, um, in the waste management side, both on solid waste uh, and wastewater. 
because we're capturing those numbers anyway. We have the production or of the solid waste or the solid waste that has been hauled off. And those are all you know numbers that are difficult for companies to collect because they may have 10, 15, 20 service providers all over their company doing these things. And it's hard to, you know, this company invoices this way, this company invoices this way, this company sends us a piece of paper. So how do you look at all those disparate data sources and make data gumbo out of that so that I could actually use it to, to create the emissions report? So the smart contract, instead of creating commercial transaction, is creating essentially an emissions transaction in the, in the greenhouse gas context. In that emissions report, does data gumbo have protocol put in there to apply it to scope one, two, or three? Yes. Or is it so once they I assume your customer defines what's scope one, two, and three, and then once you program it in, the logic takes it from there? Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it, I don't know if they'll define we'll apply the the rules as the as the protocol defines it. And um and obviously that gets reviewed by the customer. And so there may be some questionable, some little gray areas. Well, what about this or what about that? And what the smart contractor do is say, okay, if it's from this source or from this asset or from this location, this is the rule. Code and smart contracts are really good at that type of thing. Human beings, not, you know, we're okay at it, but, it, you know, that's because Joe's created a great spreadsheet that does that. Right? How do you maintain that? So we've got, you know, several customers that are, they're trying to do this manually. And they're going out and they're doing these surveys. And if you look at sustainability reports, it takes companies 9, 12 months to, you know, the larger ones to produce their sustainability reports. And then you'll find them restating it because they've made, they find errors. Because it's a manual process to go find all of these sources of stuff collected in. And yes, there's lots of software out there, but it comes back to the data economy. Let's get back for ESG reporting. Let's get back to the data. And if we can find that source data, yeah, there may be a lot of different sources and different types, but it can take, you can take three years to, you know, let's start small. Let's get this one done. And then next month we'll do this one. And the next month we'll do this one. So it can be done in an iterative approach. It's not like old software implementations where it's big bang. It's let's start small and let's crawl, let's walk, let's run. And then, you know, before you know it, you've done the marathon. Are you surprised that more sustainable companies, companies in oil and gas, folks in the energy sector haven't come around to blockchain faster or sooner? Yes. <laughs> we, particularly in the sustainability uh, space, at least I was expecting to see quicker adoption there. What we're, I think what we're experiencing, it's applying it in this more B2B type context mm -hmm. is still very new to pretty much everybody. And we call them, <laughs> you know, blockchain tourists. They want to, they want to see it. They want to touch it. Want yeah. to look at the sign of the object. Oh, that's pretty cool. And we'll get into some of those. And usually, our entry is in through like an innovation or a digital transformation group inside companies. Um, but then we'll find we'll we'll get stuck there. The, it'll work, and then they're not sure what to do with it. So I think it's simple at its core, but it's transformative in terms of its potential impact on how. A, business operates. And so if they have that strategic thinking and really want to move in that direction, and maybe this, you know, the SEC guidance is going to, you know, push that envelope a bit. But it, it is a different way of, of, of thinking. And we, we see that in, like when we do the, the smart contracts, we'll look at that old natural language, we call it natural language contract. Yeah. And I think about those old contracts, and I, I 
I've done contract management in my past, is they're almost like coral reefs. There was like a seed of that contract 20 years ago that looked like this. And then as it gets applied and renegotiated and negotiated and negotiated, it has evolved into some giant reef after time. And so when we come into those, we'll see these contracts and they'll be like in this offshore integrated drilling well services, 700 page contracts, we'll find 30 direct contradictions and errors and misstates, misstatements inside the contract. Because we're trying to write, make sure the software code does what it's supposed to do. And it says here to do this, but over here it says to do, to do that. And so I think that can become daunting is looking at all of the different contracts we have. How do we, one, how do we attack those? But then how do we look at them not in a paper-based thinking, but now you got to start in a day, think like in a data economy or in a digital way. Would you do that contract the same way? I mean, let's be real for a second. I mean, just the blockchain itself, when you're talking about you, you come across contracts and information and invoices that had banker boxes. Yeah. I mean, just the blockchain itself is sustainable because you're cutting out all oh, absolutely. of that yep. just within one fell swoop. Right. In our application of the blockchain, because there's not, you know, the, let's say the mining component of it, it is purely a storage device. So it is fairly, let's say, sustainable. And we're not huge, you know, we're not consuming huge amounts of power to, you know, to facilitate what we do. It's there just simply for storage. So, you know, how you described it earlier, that safety deposit box, that's effectively what it is. And the only people that have the key are the counterparties to that particular, you know, contract and or the auditor or regulator that you want to give access to. I don't think you're going to find that combination of the IoT platform, the smart contract, and the distributed ledger or the blockchain. And so in what's Really interesting, I think, about our origin story. It was not blockchain looking for a nail to go drive or, you know, a problem to solve. There was a problem that Andrew saw and recognized and thought, oh, what if I applied these things to it? So we came at it really kind of from a from a different direction. But now that we, we got it, we proved it a couple years ago, and then all of these opportunities start to come in. I think we suffered from what you just described. There's like, oh, this is really cool. And then we even get into a company, we do it, and they're like, oh, we can go do this. We're like, yeah, let's go do that. And then and then it's like, oh, we need to focus. So I would say we've really, Andrew and the board have done a really good job in the last year. Let's contain that, get focused. Let's not lose sight of what we could potentially do. But for us, we really cut our teeth in, in two particular contracts, complex offshore drilling services, drilling and well services, and what we call commodity haulage. Whether it's hauling chemicals, it's hauling prop, and it's hauling you know diesel, it's hauling whatever. We know how to what those data sources are and how to automate that. So we've really hyper focused on let's do those things that we know very well. And so you'll see campaigns for us like around you know chemical delivery for production chemicals in the in the oil fields. And then um, we're rolling out the integrated drilling and well services over the summer with. Uh, one of our backers who is Equinor, this is, you know, we, we announced this publicly. And so we're focused on that because we see opportunity there. And then the other area of focus was the, the pivot we made into ESG. So we're saying, you know, let's really get really good at, at haulage. Let's get really good at these complex integrated services. And let's get really good at ESG. And that's our focus. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Michael Matthews. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, eRenewable.com, and of course, you can also catch us on TuneIn and Stitcher as well if you are so inclined. All right, I got to give a few thank yous out before we uh, 
put this thing to bed. Of course, we always have to thank the team and Roger Al. Special shout out to Ashley and Tony, who have been huge supporters of the Green Insider since we were, uh, you know, one episode, two episodes, three episodes, putting them out every other week. Got to give a shout out to Ben Parvey uh, as one of the first guests to come on the program with us. Absolute shout out to him and what can't thank him enough for uh, taking a chance. I mean, episode one was Mr. Mike Niemer, of course. And then when we ventured out to, you know, somebody that wasn't part of the e-renewable team, Ben Parvey sat down with us and here we are 98 episodes later. So thank you to all of them. Got to give a shout out as well to the folks over at Intelometry, our strategic partner, Jeff Marola and Guy Sharfman. Thank you guys for your continued support. And... And the folks over at NEMA, the North American Energy Markets Association, shout out to Steve Shepard for taking a chance on us as well, Tim Berrigan, and of course, the aforementioned Miss Donna Foy, uh, one of the sweetest human beings you'll ever come across. So thank you to everybody. Of course, like I said, all the guests, everybody, the U of H folks, everybody that has been a part of this podcast for the last 100 episodes, I can't thank you enough. And then last but certainly not least, the one, the only, the man, Mr. Mike Niemer himself. I told him two years ago, listen, my man, if we're going to do this thing right, we need to do a podcast. He had no idea what a podcast was. And here we are 100 episodes later. So as I've said time and time again, I spent 15 years in the radio business. I learned as much, if not more from him from a broadcasting standpoint, as I've learned from anybody in the business. So Mike Niemer, thank you so much. And we appreciate your continued vision for what this podcast has become. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again. The U of H series goes down next week. Got to give a shout out once again to Afriya Nasir and Dr. Krishna Morty. Had a great episode 99 with them kicking this thing off. And of course, you'll hear the episodes with the students next week. And then of course, the Follower Friday series uh, with Tim Berrigan from NEMA. That goes down on Friday. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. 